Hello. I'm delighted to invite back to the show AFP's senior sports correspondent, Danny Hicks. Danny is speaking to me from Hiroshima, where he's taking a short break from the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games before the start of the Paralympics. The last time we chatted about the Olympics, we were understandably skeptical about the Games and I guess must have come across somewhat negative. But in actual fact, Tokyo 2020 was anything but. Indeed, Japan seems to have pulled it off. So Danny Hicks, welcome back to Conversations with Peter Wood. Very happy to be here, Peter, all the way from uh, the historic city of Hiroshima, where it's actually bucketing down with rain today. So uh, I, was, I was hoping to do this from some uh, location of, of significance, but uh, it's the hotel room, I'm afraid. Well, the city is good enough for me, actually, Danny. So listen, no spectators, constant COVID tests, a Japanese population who initially appeared unhappy to be hosting the games. So tell us, what was the atmosphere really like in and outside of the Olympic bubble? Uh, amazing. Uh, I've only got, uh, it's the only thing I can say. It, from the moment we arrived, we were treated so well. I mean, about seven hours to get through the airport with COVID tests and, you know, waiting for dedicated transport. And for 14 days, we were inside a sort of quasi bubble where we could only use official transport, go from accommodation to venues and and use some uh, designated spots near our hotel, like a, a 7-Eleven store to buy food and provisions. But uh, it all had to be within our plan. But And we were tested daily for COVID, so we got quite used to spitting into tubes. But it just became part of the routine. And, you know, if that was the price to pay for what turned out to be the most fantastic Olympics, I think we, we were all more than prepared to pay it and just privileged to to be here and witness something that so many people would have loved to have been here to witness and couldn't. And I think the only thing was that the, the lack of local people being able to join in as spectators was, was the biggest downer. But, you know, the Japanese people, they warmed to it, especially once there was that sort of Japan gold rush of medals in the first few days. Suddenly... The whole mood of Tokyo changed and everyone just started getting involved in, if you like, Olympic fever. You spent a lot of time among the athletes. What was their reaction, especially when compared to, say, Rio? I'm told that being prevented from mixing with other nations, as is generally the dumb thing at an Olympics, competitors have instead kind of got to know their own countrymen and women better in a way that hasn't been experienced before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the whole Olympic Village experience was was not a lot different for the athletes. You know, they they're sharing the same food halls. Obviously, there's there's distancing, and 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 they're not exactly allowed to go within a meter or two. But they could still talk. They could still share the facilities. The, the food hall in the athletes' village was a monumental thing. I mean, it was feeding up to twenty thousand meals at a time it, it had every kind of catering under the sun if you wanted sushi at two in the morning you could get it if you wanted halal lamb at four o'clock in the morning you could get it if you wanted you know non-gluten non-dairy non-anything else at any time of day or night you could get it because the athletes were coming back from events late they were going early and uh, they were having that wonderful experience that they only get an olympic especially you know, I covered golf and professional golfers, they live within their own bubble. They only see their own kind. And to hear like Mexico's Abraham Anso, who's just won a WGC event last week on his return from Tokyo, talking about how he was sharing 
a flat in the village with uh, uh, the equestrian team of Mexico and uh, all sharing experiences about their different events. And another Mexican golfer who was sharing, uh, Carlos Ortiz, who was sharing with Mexican boxing team. And he was having to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the golf course. The boxers were coming back at 11 o'clock at night and having ice, ice baths and apologizing to him for making a noise and make, waking him up. And he was apologizing to them for waking them up in the morning because he was going to the golf course. But they were all getting on fabulously. To hear these experiences from the athletes, uh, which they've never had before. If you're a professional golfer, you've never had that experience before. And um, they just loved that whole experience. The the uh, and we were hearing stories like that time and time again from the athletes that we spoke to. Just wonderful. It sounds absolutely amazing. I mean, an enduring memory for me will always be the Japanese volunteers, whom I might add rarely got to see any of the actual sports. I mean, in 2019, we saw the spirit of the Japanese volunteers at the Rugby World Cup. And again this year, we constantly saw repeated displays of friendliness and good grace from the Japanese hosts. That was a highlight for me. But what were the highlights for you, the real stars and the moments that brought a tear to your eyes? Just to say about the volunteers, you know, we had spectator-free stadiums and events, but the volunteers were largely the ones who created an atmosphere because they were there. They could do the clapping. They could do the cheering, although we technically weren't allowed to cheer because it could spread COVID. But uh, what a load of nonsense. But, yeah, they they created the, the, the thousands of people who were sort of at, at, at venues um, as the support staff, the volunteers, the media ourselves, we were the ones who were sort of charged with creating the atmosphere, giving the applause. So that was that was an abiding memory. But I think just the the the, the best memory for me is just the the sheer joy of athletes taking part in the Olympics after the delays, the uncertainty, the sort of grinding uncertainty of never knowing whether it would take place all those years of training to get to that one peak in your career for the Olympic Games. I'll, I'll give you the story. My very first thing I covered on the first day of the Games on the Saturday was the weightlifting 49-kilogram uh, class. The very first lifter to lift in that competition was a woman from Papua New Guinea called Loya Tuadika. She was also the very first woman who ever lifted in weightlifting in the Olympics because it was only admitted in Sydney 2000. She made the first ever lift at Sydney 2000. She was there 21 years later, still lifting for Papua New Guinea, became the first woman to compete in five Olympics in weightlifting. And she's never going to win a medal in the Olympics. She's not that good, but she's a hero in Papua New Guinea. And she was absolutely made up just to be there. She carried her nation's flag in the opening ceremony the night before. She got back to the village at 2 a.m., exhausted because you have to walk a long way in those opening ceremonies, and it went on for a very, very long time. She had about three hours sleep. She couldn't eat because she had to weigh in for the weightlifting. She was at the venue at 7 a.m. to weigh in. She was there lifting at 9.30 a.m., and she was the happiest woman in the world. That, to me, epitomizes what the Olympics is all about. <laughs> I mean, another highlight for me was seeing Tom Daly knitting between dives to take his mind off things. And joking aside, the training programs are brutal, aren't they? they yeah. I mean, you know, some handle it well and others not so well. I was just thinking about Katie Ledecky's swim program, 200 mm. meters, 400 meters, 800 meters, and 1500 meters, sometimes with as many as three races a day. I mean, yeah. 
you are among the athletes. So what do they what do they do to stay focused amongst all this excitement? Well, what they do is exactly that. They distract themselves and they love the fact that the Olympics, they can do it. You know, talking to Rory McIlroy at the golf, what are you doing after the round today? You know, out it'd been out in extreme heat all day long, sweating, tired, all the rest of it. He said, oh, I'm going back to watch the re- dressage. I love dressage. I'm, I'm going to watch the dressage tonight. <laughs> the only thing they're upset about was the athletes normally – if they've got a free evening, they could actually physically go to an event in the Olympics. They would get tickets for the dressage or the athletics or the swimming, whatever they're interested in, and could sit in the audience. Unfortunately, because of the COVID restrictions, they couldn't. But they went back and watched it at their hotels or in the village with other athletes, and they got the atmosphere that way. And 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 it was just amazing to hear, that, you know, these, these megastars, these superstars who were here play, playing for no money, just for pride, uh, like I say, Rory McIlroy said after the, the seven-way playoff in the golf, he'd never tried so hard in his life in any golf tournament to come third. That's what a bronze medal would have meant. He didn't get it in the end, but he's going to be back in Paris, I'm sure. Uh, we'll talk about keeping focus. It's well known that in past games, the Olympic Village always runs out of condoms. I guess that's one way to take your mind off things if you don't like <laughs> knitting, that is. But this year, the Japanese had them sleeping on cardboard beds. Did this stifle their nocturnal liaisons, do you think? Uh, not having spent any time in the village, I wouldn't know. But um, <laughs> COVID rules, uh, all athletes had to stay at least a metre apart from each other. It's quite difficult to have a nocturnal liaison if you've got to stay a meter apart uh, and the, the condoms are normally handed out in the hundreds of thousands they were this year but only when the athletes left the village <laughs> <laughs> look as with all olympics there are a few dramas we had the belarusian athlete affair um, a mm. tennis tantrum from Djokovic, uh, the team gb boxer ben whitaker refusing to wear his silver and not forgetting the spiteful moment the French marathon runner knocked all the cups of water off the table. But in the greater scheme of things, there weren't any real big dramas, were there? No massive doping scandals. No, unfortunately, we've woken up this morning to a doping scandal. You, you may not have seen it, ah. but um, uh, the British 4 by 100 metres relay team that got silver medal in the athletics, uh, one of them... Uh, the sprinter, British speed sprinter, CJ Uja. We just got some breaking news today, actually, that he's been provisionally suspended for two different uh, sort of anabolic agents that he's tested positive for. He's one of four track and field athletes. I think we're going to see a few come out because some of these tests take a while to, to come through and also they get tested post-games as well as during. Um, he's been provisionally suspended. If that is upheld, um, then I'm afraid the British uh, relay team will get stripped of their silver medal, which means Canada will get silver and China will get the bronze. Um, and there's been, uh, there's also been another sprinter, a shot putter and a 1500 meter runner who have tested positive. They're all provisionally suspended now, but yes, having said that there have been very few, we haven't had a Ben Johnson, uh, sort of incident. We haven't had the sort of mass doping in sports like weightlifting that we've seen, in the past, uh, possibly because a lot of countries were banned from weightlifting. Uh, one of the sports I cover um, in advance, Thailand were notably, uh, Romania, Turkey, and so on, or they had their quotas of athletes reduced because of dope, bad doping history. So mm. seem to have, they seem to have knocked a lot of that on the head. But I, th- I, I fear 
like we had post London and like we had post Rio in the months and years afterwards, as testing gets better and improves, we might find some of these uh, great performances weren't quite all that they seem to be. I hope not, but uh, it always seems the athletes are one step ahead of the dope testers and it takes a while to catch up. And don't forget, we've also had a year, year and a half of COVID where it's been very difficult for the out-of-competition doping testers to get to athletes in some uh, cases and, and make sure with the random testing they normally have out of competition that athletes are clean. I do hope it's not the case, but I fear, unfortunately, when there are medals and, and riches at, at stake that, that, you know, sometimes the temptations are too great. And as it appears to have been, to say provisionally, allegedly, for the sprinter CJ Uja of Great Britain. But how far back, I mean, retrospectively speaking, do these doping tests go? I mean, can someone like Mark Spitz suddenly lose a few of his gongs? <laughs> um, I don't know if his blood samples are still around, but certainly in the most recent games, um, so the athletes are still getting uh, retrospectively stripped of results from places like London uh, and, and, and uh, not so much Beijing, but really it goes back to London and Rio where the the samples have been kept and uh, and they get retested as new uh, new tests come along that can detect things that were previously undetectable um, we had a we had a weightlifter in the women's competition who's actually got the full set of gold silver and bronze medals now because she got a bronze this time her name escapes me at the moment but but both the gold and silver that she got previously were awarded to her retrospectively because the people who beat her uh, were then thrown out for doping. So uh, quite an unusual unusual set of medals she's got. Not only has she got a full set of medals, but two of them she didn't actually win on the day, if you like. Um, she was awarded them later. And that's always, to me, that's always the thing that, that I find hard to take because mm. these athletes, when you see an athlete stand on the top rung and, uh, of, the, of the podium and their national anthem's played, and the tears start to come, they're deprived of that moment, which is a moment will live with them the rest of their life because they didn't know they'd won that gold if someone who was cheating stood on that podium instead. They Absolutely. only get it later. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Danny, three things surprised me this year for different reasons. I'd love to hear your views on them. Number one, the ROC or the Russian Olympic Committee being allowed to compete despite the entire team previously mm. being disqualified roc came fifth uh russia has effectively turned their disqualification into some kind of perverse triumph and the mm. second thing that surprised me in a positive way was the delight in seeing the refugee olympic team competing i don't know whether they won any awards and the third uh the third thing, uh, the first games with transgender athletes. Of course, this has divided opinion. Mm. First of all, take, taking the first point, the Russian Olympic Committee, I think it's a disgrace that they're allowed to compete ostensibly under the same colours and not under neutral colours as the Russian flag. So they, the athletes were wearing the red, white and blue of Russia, which I think was all wrong. They were allowed to send. They they're allowed to send athletes that could prove that they had no doping history. Now I don't know how you prove a negative. To me, that's ridiculous. You either ban a country or you don't. Uh, it's a big loophole. So you had three hundred athletes from the Russian Olympic Committee, as you say, uh, competing in this Olympics. That's, that's almost a full strength. You know, Russia would normally send four or five hundred athletes, I think, to a games. So they nearly sent a full team. 
They're not far short. They're right up there on the medals table. As you say, they're, they're regarding it as a triumph. This is a, a country that has been banned from all international sport, supposedly, for institutional doping, state-sponsored doping going back years and years and years, and yet 300 of their athletes compete. I've got nothing against the individual athletes who competed. That's it. That's it. it was entirely their right within the rules. But I think that for that loophole to exist, um, frankly, was disgraceful. It left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Um, what were your other points? Sorry, the transgender, yeah. Laurel well, the Hubbard set, no, in the well, weightlifting. Yeah. Um, again, very controversial. She only identified as a woman since she was 30 years old. She's 43 now. Um, had weight, had lifted weights as a man earlier in her life. So the whole, as everyone said, she developed her muscles and strength as a male um, and therefore should not have been allowed to compete as a woman in some people's uh, eyes, but she passed the criterion as they are uh, exist now from the IOC. And so was entitled to compete again, nothing against her for competing. She failed on all three attempts, whether that's due to pressure or whatever. Uh, to, in my mind, she was never going to win a medal anyway. Um, I don't, uh, at the age of 43. Um, however, um, it kind of did everyone a favour by failing on all her attempts and not yeah. winning a medal or finishing high up. The IOC are going to uh, uh, have a, an investigation inquiry and, and, and produce a report into transgender athletes now and revise the criterion for admission. Because I think that if someone grows up as a man, as much as we support LGBT rights, Q plus rights, um, and transgender rights, as much as I do personally, I think if someone, it, it, it's a very difficult one, because I think if someone has, has grown mm. up and developed physically as a man with that strength, should they be allowed to compete later in life in pure strength events, which weightlifting is, against females who've grown up as females? It's, it's a very, very sensitive subject. So um, I, I just think they need to have a look at the rules and, and make sure it's a fair what we want is fair sport at the end of the day for everyone, no matter your, your sex, gender, whatever. And I think that's what needs to be looked at. Absolutely. And then the third thing um, was seeing the refugee Olympic team yeah. competing. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic initiative. I think this has been over the last couple of few Olympics of, of these, these people who are basically stateless refugees to compete. And we saw one amazing um, uh, athlete in taekwondo, who beat the double gold medalist from Great Britain, Jay Johnson, uh, a refugee Olympian, beat her, uh, knocked her out in the first round of Taekwondo. Big, big upset and, and, and went on to, to do very, very well. So, yeah, uh, otherwise they, they, they can't get their, their day in the sun. There was also another one from um, a refugee from Iran, I think a political refugee from Iran, who then beat an Iranian. So um was there, there were some little uh in in various events there were little things on that I was, you know obviously i was more involved in the events i was covering um closely myself uh and and was only trying to take in the rest and uh, when as and when i could and i didn't really get to see many of the refugee athletes myself but uh yeah uh, i think it's fantastic that they they get their opportunity to compete now danny let me fire three more quick questions at you um Earlier, I asked you what was the highlight of the games. But tell us, what's, what was the biggest disappointment of the games? 
I just think the fact that we couldn't have spectators, I just think it was, um, you know, everyone would say, whether you're at the golf, the weightlifting, the athletics, the swimming, wasn't this fantastic, but how much better it would have been had there been fans. If they, it, It's quite frustrating that even under the state of emergency in cities like Tokyo and Japan, they're allowing 5,000 spectators at up to 5,000 spectators at things like domestic base, league baseball games, domestic football games, rugby games, but they couldn't, you know, find find a way to get 5,000 spectators socially distanced into a 68,000 seater national yeah. stadium for the athletics finals, for example. However, we on the bright side, we did have at the velodrome, which is out of town at a place called Izu, and at the sailing and places like that, we did have some spectators for the last few days of the track cycling. There were spectators allowed in and it was just fantastic. So, uh, yeah, the biggest disappointment really for me, the, the, the lack of spectators. And that's such a shame. Mm, now, the second question, what was the most ridiculous athletic feat? Oh, I've got to go with Carsten Vorholm's 400 metres hurdles. Yeah. I mean, it was Bob Beeman-esque, wasn't it? I mean, he, he smashed his own world record set only last month by almost a second. Uh, first man ever under 46 seconds for for 400 metres hurdle. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Um, it, just one of those ridiculous race. world records. I mean, the whole race was incredible, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, the, the man who got silver smashed the old world record by half a second and only got silver. I mean, <laughs> just... <laughs> It was just, and then, <coughs> excuse me. The next day, in the four hundred meters hurdles for women, we saw a similar thing with the world record there being smashed, and not by quite the same margin, but still at two historic races in two days. And uh, uh, you know, there was that. There was, I think, I think things like Hong Kong winning six medals, um, having only ever won three medals before in their entire existence. Um, Incredible gold, two silvers, Siobhan Hoy in the pool, gold, Edgar Chung Ka Long in fencing, and three bronzes. And Sarah Lee of Hong Kong getting a second cycling bronze nine years after her first in London. Um, terrific stories all around. Bermuda winning its first ever gold medal. Um, Flora Duffy in the triathlon. So no longer is Bermuda only famous for triangles. It's now famous for triathlons. <laughs> um, Turkmenistan first ever gone. A record 93 different countries won medals. The most ever in any Olympic Games. I mean, just, you know, you ask for one ridiculous thing, there's half yeah, a dozen. Absolutely. And finally, what are you most looking forward to in Paris in 2024? Well, Paris is going to be a very different Olympics. You know, it's a different city to Tokyo. It's a it's a beautiful historic city. Tokyo is very much a, a modern megapolis, if you like. Um, uh, I look forward to there being crowds back. I look forward to it being COVID free. Whether we will be by then, I do hope so. I don't. I hope we don't go through another three years of this. And I just hope for another spectacle of sport, um, giving me some of the magic moments that that I've had in these games, including covering, uh, finally, you know, just to mention, I covered uh, weightlifting for the first few days. I'd say 55 women's kilogram, 55 kilogram women's, Heidlin Diaz of the Philippines, winning the Philippines' first ever gold medal in the Olympics. They first uh, competed in the Olympics in 1924 in Paris, coming wow. full circle there. And uh, 97 years later, they won their first gold medal through a wonderful woman and a wonderful person. 
uh, who I've, whose career I followed through Asian Games and Olympics as her fourth Olympics. She finally won the gold. She was the only person to beat a Chinese weightlifter in the weightlifting. And uh, she smashed her own personal best. And the tears were in her eyes before the bar even hit the ground uh, when she made the gold medal winning lift. And I must say, I was trying to file an alert for AFP and the tears were in my eyes as well. So I want more of that in Paris. Ah, fantastic. Now, Danny, you're heading off to cover the Paralympics, which begin on the 24th. Yes. They promise to be just as exciting. I think they will. Yeah. So I wish you all the best. But sadly, for now, we're out of time. Danny Hicks, thank you for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. Always a pleasure, Peter. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Well, that's about it for now. But before you go, may I remind you that you can buy my book, Mud Between Your Toes, on Amazon and Kindle. And of course, you can always listen to my podcasts, including all previous seasons, on just about all the top podcast platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, CastBox, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and iTunes Store. Of course, you can head straight to my website at mudbetweenyourtoes.podbean.com. Goodbye.